Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Amy Jones. Amy is an activist and organizer for social and racial justice. She is a racial justice consultant for Nacy Warner Associates. She led the organizing efforts for Albany's first ever blackout festival, was instrumental in organizing the Albany Women of Color March in January 2019 is the organizer of the Black Lives Matter rally in Albany in May 2020, which was attended by 7,000 people. And she is the recipient of the Henry Johnson Award for Distinguished Community Service in Albany. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. Now, your focus at this point in your life is to support people who are often overlooked and underserved. How did you get started with this work? So uh, primarily right now what I'm doing uh, during the pandemic is officially I contract with Macy Warner Associates, which is a consulting group based in the Capital District and other parts of New York that consults with nonprofits to move their work forward with a really, with a lens using social justice and racial justice which is incredibly important. I'm very proud to be a part of that team. The rest of my time, I spend organizing mutual aid. Uh, we've been doing this since, I think, 2018, but it really kicked into gear uh, during the pandemic, and we've raised over a quarter of a million dollars just during the pandemic for food relief and housing relief and anything emergent that comes up in someone's life that harms them economically. So we're just trying to create equity where there wasn't any. Yeah, it seems the pandemic really has brought these issues to the forefront and really makes it obvious to everybody. Many people knew about these issues, but some people who don't live in these communities thought maybe that problem was resolved, but it wasn't. Are you from New York originally? I was born in Santa Barbara, California, and I was came across the country with my biological mom and then was put up for adoption in Boston. Uh, lived in Cape Cod for a little while with my adoptive family before we settled in upstate New York. Because I was about four, yeah. And so you mentioned that you were adopted, but you also were in contact with your biological mother. Yes. Yes, because that's not always the case, right, when people are adopted. Yeah, it's not always the case. I met my mom uh, in 1997. And how did it feel for you knowing that you had a biological mother, but then you lived with your adoptive parents? Uh, it was pretty amazing. 
meeting my biological mom, hearing my origin story, meeting my biological dad. Yeah, I'm very, very blessed and fortunate that that happened in my life. It made me feel a little bit more whole. And how was the experience for you living with adoptive families? What Were they the same culture that your parents would have given you? Was there something different? Um, I was raised by a Russian Jewish woman and a Sicilian man, second generation. They adopted us. I had no idea that they were right-wing conservative Christian evangelicals. They were just my mom and dad. Uh, my dad also had some uh, issues with mental health. I was sex trafficked from the age of five until I was 12 uh, by my parents. It, it was really, really beautiful on the outside. And I was fortunate that um, my dad owned his own business and we built a home uh, in a nice area. Uh, and it seems as though we had all of the things that we needed. But if you lifted the hood on that, there was some pretty terrifying things happening. So um, it looked very, very nice. And I guess those experiences in my life and where my life went after that taught me to always look deeper, deeper into a thing. So you say you were, you were sex trafficked as a child. Yes. And did you go to school during these years? I did go to school during these years. I was actually given to a neighbor who was in his 60s, owned a farm and a business. And I was, he lived across the street from us and I was given to him to help him with chores. But my parents knew exactly what was happening. And in return, he bought all my clothes and basically took care of me financially uh, from when I was five till I was 12. And, and so that sounds like maybe locally if that happened locally where would you have turned to for help i have no idea yeah <laughs> i mean it's part of being groomed that you think it is part of your it's not like they chained me every day and dragged me across the street um i was groomed and so it was part of my lifestyle i thought it was what i was supposed to do i trusted adults I loved getting my hands dirty and digging for potatoes and I got to drive tractors and, you know, all of these amazing things. I loved being outside. There were like three beautiful dogs that I ran around with. Like there was nature and air and farming and, you know, a lot of beautiful things, but there was also something uh, pretty dark attached to that. And for a child, I can imagine you don't know what it's supposed to be like, right? So you're in this environment. And when did you realize that something wasn't right with this? The man died. Um, and I just, adolescent brain is pretty amazing and it, it protects us. And so once the man died and that was over, um, I just kind of moved on with my life. And it wasn't until I was old enough to choose having a boyfriend around 15 or 16 and had my first consensual kiss uh, is when it all kind of came back like a movie to me. And then I would think when that hit you, you know, that realization, that must be difficult, though, emotionally. Like, how did you feel towards your parents? Um, it basically uh, broke us. 
it basically broke us. And um, I was about 15 or I think 15 or 16 when I had the realization. I told my parents immediately. Their response was um, they knew, but if I didn't like it, then I would have told them when I was little. Basically, they knew, they consented, they they were a part of it. So it, it literally broke us, it broke me. I was kicked out of the home when I was 18 and I never went home again. Just stopped speaking to them. And So they kicked you out. Did you at that point have a connection to your biological family? Oh no, I didn't meet my mother till, uh, that was 1989. I didn't meet my mother till 1997. So how did you fend for yourself? Shelters. Yeah. Um, shelters, survival crime, youth shelters, youth apartment programs, uh, boyfriends, and survival crime. Sex work. And how did that work out for you? How it work out for anyone. I got uh, involved in the justice system. Uh, uh, the very first time I went to jail was, I was 23 and I went to federal prison for embezzling from a bank. Um, and that began my career of going to jail and prison for the next 15 years. And so you, what I'm hearing is you went to jail several times. At any point, <laughs> did your past come up that way your adoptive parents treated you? No, it was very different in the 90s. That's when we had the war on drugs, which was actually a war on black and brown folks. And so there wasn't this focus on treatment and mental health and substance abuse and things of that nature. There wasn't a focus on trauma. Incarceration was uh, definitely the um, on the menu for folks. And I guess that the criminal justice system at that time believed that uh, if you disappeared people who, with felonies, you were disappearing problems, but you weren't, you were disappearing people. And people are gonna come back home. Most people who are incarcerated are coming back into community. So, and then when you were incarcerated, I'm assuming that if you went to school till you were 18, you didn't do any schooling after that. So what were your chances in the job market? And did you get any help with training while you were in jail? I got no help with training when I was in jail. I did graduate from high school. Uh, I did not further my education. Um, that was not uh, offered to me. I wasn't uh, supported in that. Um, it wasn't a discussion in my household where education was extremely important. My uh, other siblings, went to private colleges and were encouraged to do great, great things. Uh, I did get training later on as a massage therapist. I was supported by uh, a reentry program and I had great support there. I had treatment, I had housing, I was, I got uh, financial aid and I completed a 1500 hour uh, massage therapy course and then took state boards and became a licensed massage therapist in about uh, 2002. Great. Oh, that's great that that worked out for you. But it sounded like that came all after prison. So you mentioned re-entry. So yeah. there are programs when people come outside, 
come back, right, that help? Yeah, so um, reentry is critical uh, in my estimation and my lived experience. Reentry is critical to uh, someone returning to their community, returning home from a period of incarceration. Uh, it will help them get traction in their life so that they're, they don't participate in what is called recidivism, where they just, it is like a revolving door. It is too overwhelming. Um, all of the responsibilities of, and with no social supports or limited social supports to stay uh, in society. And so we kind of return to what we know and that gets us uh, back in the criminal justice system. Yeah, and do you feel that things have changed over the years? Because you mentioned when you dealt with the criminal justice system, you didn't really get any help with training. It only changed when uh, middle-class white kids and rich white kids began dying from what we call the opioid epidemic. But it was the war on drugs when it was black and brown folks, the opioid crisis. We began moving legislation, calling it a crisis. Uh, the whiter the problem got, the more gentle and nicer the solution got. Um, because white middle class and rich moms were crying out because their kids were dying and overdosing. No kids should die or overdose, none. I don't want to be mistaken that or sound cruel, but entire black and brown families have been ripped apart at the fabric when it was the war on drugs. And um, we still have not healed. And there are still people who are locked up from the 90s and who will never come home because of minimum mandatory sentencing uh, and crack versus cocaine. We've built uh, many, many more facilities. Uh, we use trauma-informed practices a lot more. We uh, look at mental health. We look at substance abuse treatment. We have uh, developed harm reduction practices, and all of these are paramount to helping people get well from addiction when it was always addiction that led us to survival crime and also poverty and violence and all of those things were a huge driver. Uh, money has been poured into, uh, I don't want to say re-entry so much now, but more substance abuse and harm reduction services and mental health. There's a huge hole in re-entry services still. And probably not enough re-entry organizations are happening, yeah. And you mentioned that brown and black people have been much more impacted. And so you would identify as a black woman? Yes, with and, a white parent. Right. So I, I, this is also, I think, also interesting to me how we don't get to decide necessarily who we want to be when it comes to mixing of people of different colors, right? Because like I have children who have a Jewish father and they can decide what they are because when you look at them, nobody can tell. And I think as we are living through the pandemic, maybe some of these issues have risen again. But I, I feel that now it is different because I do think that more people are listening. I feel more white people are listening to what's going on and we can't really look away 
because this pandemic has really impacted everybody. And I think we do realize that we are not getting better unless everybody is getting better. So that I feel is encouraging. I do think it's important that we're having the conversation now. Uh, it's very difficult in that it usually, uh, the responsibility for the education usually lands on black folks and especially black women. And we're tired. <laughs> uh, and there's tons and tons like, all you have to do is just start Googling, you know, just really start Googling and do your own work. We did not create white supremacy. Uh, we do not benefit from it. We're actually very, very harmed from it. And we fight it every day um, in our jobs. Going to work is stressful enough, but going to work as a Black woman, a Black person, and dealing with microaggressions and being told that you're angry and your appearance and your and code switching and all of these things that come with it make it even more difficult. Um, while we're having the conversation, it is very important that white folks do their work. And if you're going to include someone black, um, pay them. Don't pay white folks to teach diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I think this is also something we need to think about when it seems to be white culture is dominant, dominant in how we do things, right? Because our thinking is uh, based on how we're brought up. So now we say we want diversity, but are we really open to have inclusion? To me, that's the challenge. If I really wanted inclusion, there needs to be something created together. And I'm always wondering, you know, what could that be like? Because when I came to the US, I was attracted by the melting pot, which hasn't happened and but it's a chance to have it happen now so do you have any suggestions how can white people white women i feel especially because even you know within white groups i feel that women are the ones that are more aware of this how can they support this are there organizations they can go to could they donate or could they volunteer their time are there any places that you would recommend? I think it's extremely important for white women to get involved in mutual aid efforts uh, that are run by black women for black women. We've paid for funerals. We've paid to get people's cars out of repossession. Like all we need is for someone to come say, I have a need. And we take care of it immediately through PayPal, Venmo and Cash App. If there's not an application, there's not a waiting process. We take the place of a savings or a rich uncle or a parent or generational wealth, that person that you can always go to if you needed it, that we don't have in black and brown communities. Or if we do, they're in short supply. And so we kind of want to broaden that. Um, I think it's extremely important for white women to get involved in mutual aid work and then do their learning about racial justice aside from their mutual aid work. And that does not mean empty your bank account. It means you can organize the way that we organize mutual aid, you too can organize mutual aid. Get involved with your friends group 
who are like-minded the way you are and organize the same way you would plan a wedding, the same way you organize for your nonprofit or fundraise for your nonprofit or bike ride or Susan G. Coleman runs or whatever, organize around mutual aid and trust black women, trust them, follow them, listen to them. We flipped Georgia. We voted 97% on everyone's behalf. It was black women. That is what is incredibly important for people to understand. And we are not protected. We are not paid. We are not respected. And you would think that feminism would say, sister, you know, and it, and it hasn't. White women have actually been incredibly violent uh, towards their black sisters. And that's why black women have pretty much we're we're divesting <laughs> you know it's a, it's very you're not going to keep going somewhere where you're not loved and protected and understood and and at least there's some sort of an effort being made on behalf of someone that you should uh feel safe with and you mentioned voting that has definitely changed the last time around how people participated, how many people of color participated. And I'm hoping that that will continue because what does that mean for the future, right? Yeah, it's incredibly important that um, people of color vote, but um, a lot of white women need to have their conversations with their family and friends. And you don't have to come in our communities very violently with the get out the vote stuff and tell us to vote. We vote. We're very, very aware. We vote in a system that has written us out. We vote in a system that for a very long time hasn't recognized us as people, but actually, actually property. So it's very violent when white folks come into our communities um, saying, get out the vote. And we, we understand very well uh, about voting and how uh, this political system works and doesn't work when it comes to us. And that's true because I heard already now after the past election in some states, they are trying to restrict voting again. So Amy, I'm really grateful for you telling your story and for all the activism you offer and the suggestions you offer. Thank you, Amy, for this interview. It was my pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much. What Chance is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Brabaman and original music by Max Elias.